You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucy Kellison. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, November 7th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his story, Civil or Not, the court case of Talevsky versus Marion, and the debate over a private right to sue. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Election Day is tomorrow. Coming up next in your daily headlines, we cover your rights as a voter. Tuesday, November 8th, will be Election Day. Polls will be open from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana, Jane Henniger, released a statement on Monday encouraging Indiana residents to vote. Henniger said, quote, with so much at stake in this election, from abortion access to LGBTQ rights, voting rights, racial justice, free speech, and more. We need every Hoosier to vote like their rights depend on it, because they do, end quote. Henniger also reminded Indiana residents of their rights as voters. First, you need to bring a photo ID in order to cast your ballot. Second, it is illegal for someone to intimidate, threaten, or coerce you at the voting booth. For voters with a disability, each polling place must be physically accessible and have at least one accessible voting machine. Lastly, if you're in line when the polls close, stay in line. You have the right to vote. Henniger stated that there are a lot of misconceptions about who can and cannot vote in Indiana. For instance, if you have been previously incarcerated, you are still allowed to vote in Indiana. She wrote, quote, Voting is one of the most powerful tools we the people have, to hold politicians accountable. We can use that power to protect our rights, each other, and our communities, end quote. If you run into any problems while voting or have any questions about your rights, call 866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866-O-U-R-V-O-T-E. On November 3rd at the Monroe County Election Board meeting, County Clerk Nicole Brown gave an update on early voting. She said that this turnout this year has been lower than expected. And I have to tell you, I'm a little disheartened just because when you know behind the scenes what how much goes into preparing for early voting, um, we have only had about a 9% turnout. Um, so this morning when I got to work, I printed one off at 712. And that would have been the numbers at the end of business. Yes, at the end of voting yesterday, that was 9,000. 239 total check-ins since October 12th. That is 9% of total registered Monroe County voters. Then I, in preparation for this meeting, I looked one more time. And as of 12.03, there were 9,637. So about 400 people voted today. 
Um, early voting goes through Monday at noon. We have voting tomorrow from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Voting on Saturday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then on Monday from 8 a.m. to noon, it will cut off at that time so that anyone who has not voted by Monday at noon, you will go to your regular polling site. And of course, today, the polls, the site at election operations is open until 6 p.m. Election supervisor Karen Wheeler confirmed that the numbers are down and encouraged residents to take advantage of early voting. I can just go along with that. If we have basically 9,000 people that have voted in person at this point, 9,000 plus, um, in 2018, which was a midterm, and that would be comparing very real apples to apples type of thing. At the end, we had 21,000. We are way behind on that. I can't imagine that we're going to pick up that many more people from now to Monday afternoon. But uh, every day we've been way behind them on that number. And I have no idea. It's It seemed to me that it would have been similar. And I even had thoughts that it might surpass 2018, but that's not the case. So if you're thinking about voting, please come down and vote to help our numbers besides the real reason about voting. Brown speculated that residents might be waiting to vote on Election Day, but informed the public that if they cannot vote on Election Day, they still can participate in early voting. And then we were, of course, surprised on Election Day with the huge turnout. So maybe everybody's waiting. I had somebody tell me that just this morning. He said, I I said, you can vote early. Yes. Who's promoting? And uh, he said, I will be at my polling site. So um, a lot of people still want to do that on Election Day. But if you are not able to because of work or some other commitment, early voting is available right now and you just need your government issued ID. Wheeler commented that the county has a successful setup and that voting only takes about 15 minutes due to the polling site running smoothly. There hasn't been really any long lines, um, meaning I get a lot of compliments saying that the organization and just how the method works was just been very pleasant. In fact, I had one last week said, I think every county needs to come here. Is it okay to kind of compliment everybody on this, but is that every county should come here and see how it, this is run because everybody needs to copy you guys. So I thought that was really nice. Thank you. But as they come in, they don't stand long. They get the ballot, they get printed, they go vote and they check out and they're out the door. And it's usually about 13 to 15 minutes from the beginning to end, depending on, of course, of how long they take to vote that I have no control over. So it's most people are very happy with the process. Monroe County residents were able to participate in early voting at election operations until noon today. Voting on Election Day begins tomorrow at 6 a.m. and ends at 6 p.m. at your local polling site. During the November 2nd meeting of the Monroe County Board of Commissioners, Commissioner Lee Jones read a proclamation regarding Operation Green Light for veterans in Monroe County. Operation Green Light for Veterans in Monroe County. Whereas the residents of Monroe County have great respect, admiration, and the utmost gratitude for all the men and women 
who has selflessly served our country and this community in the armed forces, and the contributions and sacrifices of the men and women who served in the armed forces have been vital in maintaining the freedoms and way of life enjoyed by our citizens. Monroe County seeks to honor these individuals who have paid the high price for freedom by placing themselves in harm's way for the good of all. Veterans continue to serve our community in the American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, religious groups, civil service, and by functioning as county veteran service officers in 29 states to help fellow former service members access more than $52 billion in federal health, disability, and compensation benefits each year. Approximately 200,000 service members transition to civilian communities annually, and an estimated 20% increase of service members will transition to service civilian life in the near future. Studies indicate that 44 to 72% of service members experience high levels of stress during transition from military to civilian life. In observance of Operation Greenlight, Monroe County encourages its citizens in patriotic tradition to recognize the importance of honoring all those who made immeasurable sacrifices to preserve freedom by displaying a green light in a window of their place of business or residence. Now, therefore, we, the Monroe County Board of Commissioners, proclaim November 7th, 2022 through November 13th, 2022 as Operation Greenlight for Veterans in Monroe County. Monroe County Health Administrator Lori Kelly provided updates on COVID-19. Kelly said that while coronavirus rates are stable at the moment, the health department is on the lookout for a winter surge. So according to the Indiana State Department of Health, COVID-19 is stable at this time across the state. Uh, We are monitoring for winter surges, however. Uh, Currently, nearly 50% of COVID cases across the state are due to the BA5 strain. BQ1 and BQ1.1 cases are beginning to rise. Uh, Currently in Indiana, RSV and influenza are prevalent. RSV is starting to plateau in the southern region of the state. We are happy to share that Monroe County, with the help of the Indiana Department of Health, mobile vaccination unit have been able to provide over 900 flu and COVID vaccines uh, during the recent two-day clinics. During public comment, Director of Advocacy and Public Policy for the Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, Chris M.G., commented on the proposed new jail on Fullerton Pike. He also briefly touched on the Monroe Convention Center. Good morning, Commissioners, distinguished staff. Um, This is Christopher M.G. from the Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce, and we want to do a plug for our next community conversation, which is Tuesday, November 15th at the Elks Lodge here on Walnut Street. If you recall, we did a one on uh, Lake Monroe in June, which was well attended. And uh, this is going to be a conversation uh, to inform the public about the uh, the vital area when it comes to public safety and how we incarcerate in our community. The Monroe County Justice Response Committee has been meeting for over a year now to discuss ways to implement findings from a 2020 study. So what does 
This reform entailed well, the new justice center that is for the plan commission, uh, possibly at Fullerton Pike. Um, this current jail facility is failing, cannot be, cannot ensure consistent and sustained provision of constitutional rights of incarcerated persons. That was the assessment from 2020 on where we're at. Beyond the Justice Center, the report indicates that 75 to 80% of the daily 250 to 320 inmates have some sort of mental illness or substance abuse issue. The current facility does not have the space nor the staff of mental health professionals to address that issue. So Monroe County government operates and funds the jail and courts and safety and justice affects the quality of place in Bloomington and in the entire Monroe County. This issue also includes Indiana University and the students it has. So the conversation it will be that Tuesday the 15th uh, with doors opening at 11.15 and the program at 11.30 with $15 for chamber members and 20 for the public. We'll have a short presentation uh, by former city and county attorney Margie Rice, followed by a panel discussion, discussion featuring perspectives on judicial reform for members of our community, including Commissioner Lee Jones. Um, we'd like everybody to get out there. We think it's a very important issue. Next up, the it wouldn't be a public comment from the chamber without a mention of the convention center. We are, and our key stakeholders are looking forward to next week's meeting with city and county officials on how we can agree on expanding the convention center. This is a real opportunity for collaboration and give and take um, to make this a reality. Uh, I thank you for your time today. Next, County Attorney Jeff Cockerell presented an ordinance for an economic development income tax capital improvement plan. According to Cockerell, a policy would need to be put in place in order to receive funding to purchase the property for the jail. Yes, uh, as you're aware, the city council um, and the local income tax council approved an economic development income tax that is started collecting, I think, in October. So it's already being collected. Um, it's scheduled to be started to be distributed in January. In order to receive a distribution of that tax, you have to have a this plan and a plan of this nature in place. Uh, we discussed this at last week's work session, um, and so. Essentially, the project in this plan is the uh, Criminal Justice Center. And so we estimate that total cost to be $100 million. I hope it's not that much, but I think it's safe to say it'll be at least over $32 million, which is the uh, estimated revenues over the next three years for the county's portion of uh, economic development income tax. Um, so if you have any questions, I'm more than happy to answer them. Um, but I would hope for approval because we are hoping to sell a bond anticipation note that is centered on these funds, utilization of these funds, and it would be tough to sell if we didn't know we were going to get it. The commissioners approved the ordinance unanimously. The next Monroe County Board of Commissioners meeting will be held on November 9th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro continues his story, Civil or Not, the court case of Tulevsky versus Marion, and the debate over a private right to sue. We turn to Abe Shapiro for more.
Good evening, fair listener. I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is The Disbulletin, where we cover the latest issues affecting the disability community and beyond. We continue our special report, Civil or Not, the case of Tlevsky v. Marion and the debate over a private right to sue. Arguments, by the way, are slated to take place tomorrow in Washington, the final showdown between Marion County and the individual affected in this court case, Tlevsky. Right now, I am joined by Director of the Disability Advocacy Organization, the ARC of Indiana, Ms. Kim Dodson, and Professor Steve Sanders, a constitutional law professor at IU Mauer School of Law, whose specializations include questions regarding the 14th Amendment's guarantees of equal protection and due process, in particular when applied to Section 1983, the statute currently at hand in this case. Welcome to the Disbulletin. I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you for asking me, Abe. Thank you, Abe, for inviting me to uh, be a part of this. It's really important, and I appreciate your interest in everything that you are doing. So let's begin by laying the bare bones of this situation. Who is involved in this court case? So uh, this involves a, a, a gentleman who is now deceased, who was a resident in a nursing home in northern Indiana that is owned by a private government entity called the Health and Hospitals Corporation. During the course of his residency, Mr. Tlevsky was showing signs of dementia. He was acting out. He was acting in ways that the staff perceived to be threatening and potentially dangerous to staff members and to other residents of the home. And so they did a number of things. A doctor there prescribed medication intended to sort of calm him down or to to make him less active, essentially to subdue him. The other thing they did at one point was to transfer him against his will to a different nursing facility, one that was all male, because one of the allegations was he was acting in potentially sexually threatening ways to women in the home he was in, something he and his family protested. So eventually he won uh, 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 the part of his case before an administrative law judge that said he was inappropriately transferred, and they gave him the opportunity to go back to the original uh, nursing home, and he declined at that point. And then he later passed away. But his family continues the suit in his name, and what they're saying is he was deprived of rights that he was guaranteed in federal law, which provides funding for these kinds of nursing homes. And because his rights were violated, it's not enough that he had the chance to go through an administrative process and challenge decisions or question decisions or perhaps get decisions reversed. He also suffered damages. He had emotional suffering. He had perhaps physical suffering that was caused by the treatment that he was accorded. And so his estate, his family gets to carry on that claim, even though he is now deceased. And what are the primary questions at hand? The question now before the Supreme Court is that the Constitution has what's colloquially referred to as the spending power. Essentially, that means Congress gets to spend money on things it thinks would be good and would provide for the general welfare. There's no question that Congress can appropriate money to allow uh, people who are eligible for Medicaid 
to live and receive services in nursing homes. No question about that. That's a federal program where the federal government spends money in a cooperative state-federal program. Uh, so right off the bat, the case in front of the Supreme Court deals with not all nursing homes, but nursing homes that are publicly owned, uh, owned by government entities. When that law also says, you know, states, you're going to get this money to spend, but in exchange for that, you have to live up to certain requirements. You have to meet certain guarantees. And among those guarantees are you agree that the the, the residents in your nursing facilities have a right not to be chemically uh, restricted in various ways, uh, have the right not to be transferred in ways that are unnecessary or that, that are against their will. Does the recipient of these services, in this case, Mr. Toledsky or now his estate, do they get to sue and say, this spending agreement between the federal government and the states is the resident of the nursing home, who's what the law might call a third-party beneficiary. They weren't a party to the agreement between the federal government and the state, but that money is being spent for their benefit. Do they have the right to go into court and say, this state government agency, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, um, violated my rights, which are secured by the federal law that set the money flowing in the first place. The money didn't come to me directly. The money came to the nursing facility, but it was clearly intended for my benefit. The nursing facility violated the terms of its agreement with the federal government. I suffered damages. I suffered loss. I should have a right to sue. That's the question, as kind of uh, easily and simply as I can describe it, in this case. Director of the Disability Advocacy Organization, the ARC of Indiana, Kim Dodson, what are your first impressions of this case, uh, based on your prior experience? Unfortunately, I am not surprised that a nursing facility or any type of an institution would abuse and neglect a patient by utilizing chemical restraints to make life easier for the institution. We hear all too often that things don't go um, as they should um, in some of these large living facilities. And with the shortage of caregivers that we have working in the field, um, again, I think a lot of people are turning to chemical restraints to get through the day, take care of the individual, but not respecting the individual the way that they should be, and certainly not providing um, appropriate services and support. So quite honestly, I'm not surprised that a nursing facility would utilize chemical restraints. I am surprised that a organization such as Marion County Health and Hospital Organization would not or would move forward a case not just looking at the liability, but putting forth such a broad, damaging question that not only accounts for their or asks for there to not be any accountability for the care that they are contracted to provide, but also to do some sweeping, potentially sweeping damage um, that would undermine the rights of the very people that their mission um, and that their organization put forth that they are wanting to serve. So that part I'm extremely concerned and surprised about. Um, and I think it is just one of those things as we've watched this case over the years, um, 
we were hoping at some point it would stop, but I think with the current action of the Supreme Court around the Dobbs case, um, I think a lot of us who are advocates got very concerned because we have now witnessed the U.S. Supreme Court throwing aside decades of precedent and putting forth a very conservative viewpoint that is very damaging. Absolutely. And it is concerning as well, especially because we're also turning now to the issue of disability rights in addition to, uh, well, reproductive rights. But really, it appears to me the court is examining almost the, uh, it almost appears to be more than just a case, really an indictment of the Medicaid system in general, at least in this court case. Yeah, I agree. I think what what this puts out there is if you are a person with a disability, if you are a person who is elderly, if you are a person who um, it comes from a low-income background, and you qualify and are found eligible for some of these government assistance programs that will help you uh, receive some of the critical supports and services that you need to get through everyday life, that that now is going to find you in a situation where you no longer have any of your human and civil rights, specifically because you qualify for those services and utilize those programs. And that's not okay. Right, right. So really, at the at the end of the day, this is more than just affecting nursing homes, you're saying? Absolutely, it's more than impacting nursing homes. It impacts people who utilize the SNAP program for food assistance, um, people who utilize all types of Medicaid programs. Uh, there's also some other programs for the temporary assistance for needy families. The, the population that could be impacted by a decision should it go in favor of HHC would impact millions of people across our country. And that is something that should be taken extremely seriously, not just by the, the people who are going to be impacted, but absolutely by health and hospital uh, corporation who is thrusting this potential decision on people, but also from all Marion County city councilors, the mayor, um, who play a role um, in putting forth those those board members for HHC. This is a very big issue and one that should be taken very seriously. Please make sure to stay tuned tomorrow for the Supreme Court oral argument. You've heard the two sides. The time has come. Again, Kim Dodson, thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you, Professor Steve Sanders, for sharing your time with us, sharing your expertise. And you've heard the legal side, you've heard the advocacy side, and it's almost justice time in Washington. Stay tuned for tomorrow when Tulevsky and the Marion Health and Hospital Corporation go head to head in the decisive Supreme Court case for the private right to sue. Live and learn. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot water systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. 
you've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and The Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucy Kellison. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is now available as a podcast. Just search up our call letters, WFHB, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 